Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. This morning I want to call your attention to the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews, reading verses 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The book of Hebrews is sometimes difficult for people in Western cultures because it deals with a number of different ideas that are unfamiliar to us. It talks about a temple. It talks about uh, sacrifices and covenants and priests. We don't have temples. We have churches. We don't make animal sacrifices or incense offerings. There are no special sights or smells or bells and whistles in our worship services. And the entire arrangement seems unfamiliar to us. But I dare say it wasn't unfamiliar to the people that received this letter from the Apostle Paul. The Jewish Christians in the first century had come out of Moses' law, out of Judaism. They were very familiar with tabernacles and temples and sacrifices and offerings and priests. And it's not unfamiliar to people in many different cultures throughout this world. For most religions have temples. Various religions in the world have priests and other kinds of offices that are unfamiliar to Baptist peoples like us. And when many of the people of the worlds, whether in Eastern or some in Western cultures today, read the book of Hebrews, the language here is not as strange to them as it may be to you and me. But it's important that we understand the background of the imagery that is in this book and in the text before us this morning, it reminds us that we have a priest. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Yes, you and I this morning have a priest. You say, well, I thought we had a pastor. Well, I'm not talking about an under-shepherd. I'm not talking about a pastor. This morning I'm talking about one particular priest whom we love and adore. In fact, he is named in our text, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now notice this text begins with terminology that uh, reminds us that he's basically concluding a thought. Seeing then, we might say, therefore. And what he's saying through this expression is that this is the climax. This is the thought toward which he's been heading. It's the climax of this entire section. What he's doing in our text this morning is returning back to the end of chapter 2, where he said in verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. 
He introduces the idea of a high priest back in the second chapter. And then he develops another thought through the third chapter. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So he's going to develop this thought that Jesus is the apostle, capital A, of our profession. And he reminds us that just as Moses represented God to the people as the apostle, one who was sent and officially sanctioned and commissioned to lead the people as God's apostle, and just as Joshua was God's apostle, if you please, that is God's ordained man to lead them into the land of promise, so Jesus is our representative from God. He is God's commissioned apostle to teach us God's word and to lead us into gospel blessings. But now he returns to the idea of the priest. And the fact is that Jesus not only represents God to us, but he represents us to God. That's what a priest does. He represents man to God. A prophet represents God to the people. He says, thus saith the Lord. He speaks for God. He leads the people because God has commissioned him to perform that task. But a priest, a high priest, represents the people to God. And this is the thought that is really going to be the dominant theme of the next six chapters in the book of Hebrews, all the way from chapter 4, verse 14, where we've taken our text this morning, through the end of the 10th chapter, the apostle is going to proceed to discuss the qualifications of the Lord Jesus to the priesthood, and he's going to talk about what this means for each of us. Now, what he's saying here is that Jesus is greater than Aaron. You know, that's been the theme of the book up to this moment. Christ is greater than the angels, chapter 1. He's greater than Moses, chapter 3. He's greater than Joshua, chapter 4. And for the next six chapters, he plans to develop this theme by divine inspiration. Christ is greater than Aaron. Now, I dare say that the text we've taken this morning is a very comforting passage designed to encourage these weary and persecuted believers that received Paul's letter. And I think we see an example of Paul's pastoral heart in these verses. Now, he's just told us previously, we better be careful that we don't fall short of the rest that is available to us. It's a warning passage in the first half of chapter 4, in which he challenges us to beware of an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And he says, brethren, take heed, lest you fall short, like the Israelites did in the wilderness, of entering into the blessings that are available to you in the gospel. Be careful. So he challenges them. But I love how after he challenges them, he comforts them. And a good pastor will always be sensitive to people's capacities and know that he can't just beat them over the head every week. He can't just challenge them every week. I think it's appropriate that we be challenged. Sometimes we need to be talked straight to, don't we? Sometimes we need a man to tell us what we need to be doing. We need a pastor to just uh, shoot straight from the hip, you know, not to mince his words. We want plain talk, plain speech for plain people. I think that's very important. My beloved 
may I say that most of us are having a tough time in life. And most of us have some burdens to carry. And I'm sure that many of you here this morning came with a heavy heart. And some of you have minds that are overly taxed with worry and anxiety and the pressures of making ends meet for your family and uh, relational difficulties and uh, health concerns and the fears of aging and perhaps you're struggling with loneliness and discouragement. And I, I think in any congregation like this, we have people who are feeling that life is challenging enough as it is in many respects from Sunday to Sunday. I was given advice early on in my ministry, preach on suffering and you'll never lack for a congregation because on every pew there's at least one broken heart. And I think we can all identify with that this morning. And isn't it wonderful to know that the Lord is faithful in Scripture, not only to challenge us, but to comfort us. And that's what the passage before us this morning brings to the table, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, one who can be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses or infirmities. That's what the word means. You feel weak today? You feel infirm? Does it seem, my friends, that evil is winning and good is teetering and tottering on the scaffold of time? I, I dare say here's a message of comfort for you then. We have a great high priest who is compassionate. He can be touched with the feeling of your infirmities. He's passed into the heavens. You have, as we sang just a moment ago, a rich almighty friend. Jesus the Savior is his name. He freely loves and without end. You see, that's what a priest is. He's a friend. Somebody says, you Baptists, I feel sorry for you that you don't have a priest. I have a priest I can go to with my cares. I need a listening ear. I need someone to empathize with me. I, I need a priest who understands what it feels like to have the problems and pressures of life. Somebody who's like me, but yet a man who occupies a sacred office. I, I need a priest to go and pray for me. Somebody says, preacher, I feel very sorry for you Baptists because you don't have a priest. Oh, but we do. We have a great high priest who is a rich almighty friend. Jesus, thou art the sinner's friend as such. Another hymn writer says, I look to thee. Jesus the Savior is his name. Indeed, my friends, we have a priest. So you see the pastoral heart of Paul in following challenge with comfort in this fourth chapter of Hebrews. Now, in many parts of the world today, I think people would consider it strange, as I mentioned, that we Baptists don't have priests in our churches. The Jews would certainly consider it very strange, for they knew what it was to have a priest. And even many Catholics and Episcopalians in the Christian tradition may wonder why we have pastors and ministers in our churches, but we don't call them priests. We don't have any priests. Somebody says, well, that's really what you are, is you're a priest to take my confession and to issue forgiveness. No, dear friends, the word pastor means shepherd. The role for gospel ministry according to the New Testament, we believe, is a shepherding role, shepherding the flock. Our role as pastors is simply to oversee 
and to notice people that are struggling and to try to give them the word, to feed them because they are God's sheep. Jesus said, feed or shepherd my sheep and my lambs. And our role is really to tend the flock. It's not to be an intermediary. I am not closer to God than you are, or it shouldn't be that way. I don't have privileges that are not available to you. In fact, one of the themes that the Bible and the New Testament teaches and that we affirm here at Bethel Primitive Baptist Church is the priesthood of all children of God. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. Every one of us is a priest. That is, you can go to God on your own and make your sacrifice of praise and offer intercessions and prayers. You have personal access to God. You don't need to go through Mary or to go through an earthly priest because we already have a priest. His name again is Jesus. But many religious people today would say you don't have priests. I pity you. The best way to answer that kind of comment, my friends, is to say, as a matter of fact, we do have a priest as our text is, seeing then that we have. And interestingly, that helping verb, having, I guess it's a participle in the book of Hebrews, is, appears over and over again as he reminds us of what we have. For instance, in the eighth chapter of Hebrews, verse 1, he says, of the things we've spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest that is set, S-E-T, on the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. That's the sum or the main point that the writer has been developing in Hebrews. This is the sum. We have such a high priest. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, he says, having boldness. Here's something we have. This is a present possession. I'm glad to tell you today. You don't have to wait till you get to heaven to possess communion with God, access to him, fellowship with him, a relationship with him. We have this right now. We have boldness. That word means freedom of speech. It had political connotations in Greek city-states where the citizens could speak freely. Politically speaking, you know, in many places, they don't let the public say anything. They censure public speech. One of the blessings we have in America, according to our Bill of Rights in the United States Constitution, is the freedom of speech. We have the freedom to make our thoughts known. We don't have to be fearful that we're, we will be persecuted because we speak our mind. We can say what we believe, whether anybody else agrees with us or not, we still have the freedom to speak our mind. May I say in spiritual terms, my friends, you can go to God and not be afraid. Now, of course, God is uh, to be revered, and he won't take us telling him off. <laughs> so he says, okay, I'm just going to tell him off. Oh, be cautious, be careful, my friends. But at the same time, you can speak to him as freely as a child would speak to its father. You can let your requests be made known to God without fear of recrimination, without fear of punishment. You see, that hasn't always been the case. In fact, in eastern courts of kings, average people, ordinary people like us, didn't have access to the king, did they? Do you know what would happen if you appeared unsummoned before a king of Persia or a king of 
Babylon or the king of Egypt, you know what would happen? Dear friends, you couldn't just go in and speak freely with him. Well, the same thing probably that would happen today if you tried to storm the White House. <laughs> you know, Secret Service would either you know, gun you down on the way in or they would uh, tackle you and arrest you and your face would be plastered all over the news and you would be locked up for an indefinite period of time. That's probably what would happen, right? That's why Esther's daring decision to approach King Ahasuerus, who was the king of uh, Persia, you know, she actually risked execution by daring to approach him unsummoned. She said, if I perish, I perish. But the urgent need of the hour was such that she was willing to take the risk in order to plead for her people, the Jews. Now, we're living in a day of what I would call chatty familiarity with God. When people think that God is like my neighbor from down the street or my buddy that I play softball with. And it seems strange to us that we would even need a priest to give us access to God. But I dare say, dear friends, we do need a priest. We have boldness because Jesus, our priest, has opened for us a new and living way, says Hebrews 10:21, through the veil that is to say his flesh. And having a high priest, having a high priest, that's a present possession over the house of God, let us draw near. We have the encouragement not to be afraid, not to shrink back like the Israelites at Mount Sinai and say, let not God speak to us lest we die, but Moses, you go between us and God. You speak with God and tell us what he said. We have a priest. Now you say, preacher, why do we need a priest? Well, the image of the word priest is the idea of a bridge. And you don't need a bridge unless you have a what? A gap or a gulf. The purpose of a bridge is to span a great gulf and connect two plateaus so that you have access. You can transport yourself across the gulf. You see, a priest, the word actually speaks of the idea of a bridge. I think of the Grand Canyon. Some of you have probably stood on one side of the Grand Canyon and looked across that great gulf all the way to the other side and thought, there's no way I could jump across it. Evil Knievel couldn't even traverse it back in his heyday on a motorcycle. You say, preacher, I don't even think they could build a bridge. That's such a great gulf. I'll tell you, that gap from one ridge to the next in the Grand Canyon is minuscule compared to the great gulf fixed between sinful men and a holy God. The reason we need a priest, the very idea, presupposes a gap like the Grand Canyon. It's an infinite moral distance between a holy God and sinful men. Now, like I said, we're living in a day of chatty familiarity with God, but the Jews in Bible times had a profound and palpable awareness of the transcendence and the holiness of God. And consequently, they sensed the gulf, the great gulf that separates this holy God from sinful men. The founder of the Jewish religion, Abraham, said it this way in Genesis 18:27: Behold, I have taken it upon myself to speak unto Jehovah, who am but dust and ashes. 
Now, why would he use such terminology? Because he had a profound awareness that there was this great distance between dust and ashes, sinful men, and the holy God of heaven and earth. And that distance is illustrated in Jewish worship in terms of the layout of the Jewish temple. You remember, don't you, there were two rooms or courts in the way the temple was constructed. There was the outer court and then the inner sanctum. They were called the holy place, the outer court, and then the holy of holies or the holiest of all, the sanctum sanctorum. And there was a great curtain called the veil that separated between the holy place, the outer court, and the holy of holies. You know, in the holy of holies, they had the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the two tablets, the Ten Commandments that Moses had uh, been given on Mount Sinai, also Aaron's rod that budded, and the golden pot of manna were contained. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the lid to the box, which was uh, the, called the mercy seat, overlaid with pure gold, and then the cherubim, the golden cherubs, on each side of the lid of the ark with their wings outstretched and their eyes peering upon the uh, mercy seat which covered the law of God inside. And there's this great curtain, the veil, that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. And only one man could enter behind that veil and he could only do it one day per year on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. And he could only go in on one condition, that he brought blood with him to sacrifice first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. Average ordinary people couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. That's where God lived. The Shekinah glory of God, that bright, ineffable light symbolizing the presence of God, that theophany, abode on top of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, God's throne, his seat, if you please, was in the Holy of Holies. And man could not get into God the entire layout of the Jewish temple with this curtain that acted as a barrier between God and man stood as a symbol of the unapproachability of God. A big sign, as it were, could have been posted there, no access. Have you ever driven down the interstate or the county roads and seen a sign by a road closure that said no access, you can't go in here. Or perhaps you've gone by a, a building, maybe a corporate office, and they have placed barricades around it saying no admittance, no access. It's not accessible to ordinary people. Only people who are qualified can go in. May I say, dear friends, the gulf between creatures and sinful creatures at that. And the holy God is an infinite moral divide that cannot be traversed unless one is highly qualified. Only a priest, a high priest. And by the way, they had priests from the tribe of Levi, you know, these different priests. And there were 24 courses of Jewish priests. And the head of all 24 courses was called the high priest. That is, he's the priest of the priests. He's high. But you know, never was a Jewish priest called a great high priest. Notice how he's added adjective on top of adjective. You've got a priest, that is, someone who represents men to God. 
Then you've got a high priest who is in charge of all the other priests. But now we read about, in the New Testament, a great high priest. It would be like saying, here's a father of the children. Here's a grand father, a high father. He's grand. Yes, my friends, if you have grand children, then you are grand. But you know, some of you are great grand. You see how, you add, how they have adjective on top of adjective? You've got children, they're grandchildren. Now you have great grandchildren. Jesus is not just a priest, and he's not just a high priest, but seeing then that we have a great, and he's the only one in the universe with this label, a great high priest, it means surpassing, superlative. It speaks of the superiority of Jesus Christ. He's the penultimate priest. He's the final and the penultimate priest of all time. So you see this idea of this divide between a holy God and sinful men implies the need of a bridge or a priest to bridge the gap, to represent us to this holy God. For I don't have the opportunity to get close to him. I can't come into the presence of this holy God on my own, and you can't, dear friends. He's the king. And I'm just a peasant. And a sinful peasant at that. He is the Shekinah glory. And if I were to draw near to him, I would be consumed because no man can look upon God and live. That's why we need a priest. So the essence of the role of priest is to give access to God. His basic function was to represent men to God. Again, that's the opposite of the prophet's role, which was to represent God, the people, to speak on behalf of God. We need someone like us, my beloved, to listen to us, don't we? Who can empathize with our trials, who will be a friend to us and function in order to advocate for us before God. I've told you before about uh, one of my grandchildren who was diagnosed early on in his life with mitochondrial disease. That's the part of each cell that is supposed to uh, conserve and then dispense energy to the cells in the body. So the reason that you can walk from the front to the back is because you have energy. Your mitochondria are dispensing that energy so that you can act, you can function. And his mitochondria are like a leaking faucet. You know, if you've ever cross-threaded a water hose onto the outdoor spigot, the threads are not completely interlocked like they should be. You've gotten it on there, but when you turn it on, it loses a lot of water at the source. That's Basically, his problem is uh, his mitochondria do not keep the energy from food and nutrients that he takes into his body. They don't keep it and uh, then dispense it. They, it loses a good bit of it at the source. So he has this disease. It's a strange genetic disease. But he has just uh, recently turned 12 years of age. We didn't know that he would live past uh, infancy. Then they said, we don't know, maybe five years of age, but he's just recently turned 12 and he started jogging some and he's doing wonderfully. We're just so thankful for the progress that he's made. And you say, my medical science is, is wonderful and it is. I'm so thankful for it. Thankful for physicians who see themselves more as a pill dispensary who will actually investigate a person's problem and try to figure out 
as a scientist should, how to solve the problem. That's what doctors used to be. You know, they, they had such a personal investment in their patients, they would actually try to analyze and examine what could possibly fix this problem or help this situation. Today, they just say, well, here the big pharma said this is what we need to dispense in this case, so they end up being basically uh, pharmacists in many respects. And of course, I don't mean to throw off on physicians. I'm thankful we have them. But one of the reasons that my grandson has survived as long as he has and done as well as he has is because he not only had good doctors, but he had an advocate. He had someone who would go to bat for him, who would speak for him, who would say, you will help my son. I have done research here. Have you considered this? And the advocate was his mother, our daughter. And his mother has done tremendous, extensive research. She has learned the lingo. She has suggested to the doctors and has been willing to meet with their, you know, you don't know what you're talking about, I'm the expert here. And she's just stayed at it until they've listened. And finally, my friends, many of them have taken their cue from her and done their research and said, I think you're onto something. He's had an advocate. You know, that's what a patient needs in a hospital. Somebody to speak up for them, to advocate for them. The saddest thing is to see someone in a nursing home or a hospital who has no one to speak for them. No one who will try to do some research and figure out what this person needs with their body chemistry to solve this particular issue. They need an advocate. Now, again, I'm not saying that common ordinary people can take the place of an expert. I'm so thankful for physicians who are trained and who are knowledgeable more than we are. But you know, you listen to my daughter talk about her son's problem today and she sounds like she's speaking a foreign language to me because she's done the research, you know. And she knows his body chemistry better because she's his mother than a complete stranger would, you see. An advocate, somebody who will stand up for you. Have you ever felt the need to have a friend, somebody to stand up for you? Someone who understood you? Someone who really was invested in your well-being? My beloved, you have one this morning. You have a heavenly helper today, a great high priest, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And your advocate is the heavenly Father's own Son. Listen to our text. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, he is your friend because he assumed your nature and mine. He took bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, and was subsequently tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He experienced the whole gamut of human experience, sin accepted. He knows what it is to be lonely. He knows what it is to be rejected. He knows what it is to hunger and thirst. He knows what it is to suffer privation. He knows what it is to be poor and friendless and ridiculed and bullied and mocked. He knows what it is to be the victim of an injustice because he was tempted in all points. That is, in every category of human experience, Jesus was truly man, a very man. Sin accepted. My friends, he even was charged our sins on the cross and he felt the guilt of that. As the Father poured out his wrath upon your substitute and mine in our stead, 
Jesus Christ knows, my friends, what it is to suffer. And therefore, he can be touched. When you go to him today and say, Father, for Christ's sake, please hear my prayer. I am so heavy hearted. Jesus feels exactly the burden that you feel. He knows where you are. Very, very wonderful thought to me. You are not alone in this world. I'm talking to you this morning, my friend. You are not on your own. You have a heavenly helper, a heavenly friend. Though you are poor, weak, and worthless, I hope you can sing, I have a rich, almighty friend. You have a priest, and it's the Father's own son. Now, if you had the president's own son to speak for you, or the mayor's own son, and you had a need, don't you think, dear friends, that you would have pretty good hope of success to know that you had such a lobbyist on your case? Yes, indeed. And to know that the Heavenly Father's own son is my advocate and yours today, my priest. My, what a privileged position you and I have today. Now, where is our priest? We've asked the question, why do we need a priest? Where is our priest? Question two. The text says he has passed into the heavens. Some of these religious people around us today might say, you say you have a priest, well, where is he? I don't see him. Because our priest is passed into the heavens and the allusion in that language obviously is to the high priest entering behind the veil into the holy of holies just as the jewish high priest once per year went alone into the presence of god so our high priest has passed into the heavens chapter 9 of hebrews verse 24 says christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. You see, the Old Testament temple and holy place was a shadow. But we're talking about the substance now, the reality. He's not entered into the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Our priest has passed into the heavens. Now that's good news because in chapter 2 we learned that he was made a little lower than the angels. He came way down. He became bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. He assumed in the hierarchy of creation, he assumed our posture. But now he's in the perpetual presence of God. And you see, that's one way in which he's greater than the Aaronic priesthood, greater than Aaron as priest, Moses' brother. Because those priests were not suffered to continue by reason of death. They had a very temporary kind of ministry. They were priests for a while, but then they were replaced by someone else. I'm telling you, our priest is greater. He's the great high priest. He's superior to all of the Old Testament priests because he has a perpetual presence at the very throne of God. Now, interestingly, the word heavens, uh, plural, is used in our text. Seeing we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Uh, you may know that the Jews believed in three heavens. The first heaven was what we would call the sky, the atmosphere, where the clouds appear, where the rain originates, uh, the, the sky. And the second heaven was the sun and the moon and the planets and the galaxies far, far away. And the third heaven was the very abode of God outside of the closed system 
of creation. You'll notice I'm not an evolutionist. I do not believe that the universe is an open, ever-expanding system. I believe it is created by God and He controls it, my friends, and beyond the sunset, as the hymn writer says. Just over the stars, another hymn writer says, is the abode of God. And it's a real place called the heaven of heavens. And that's where Jesus, our high priest, has passed. He hasn't passed away. He has passed into the heavens. He has gone behind the veil, if I can say it like this, into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. He's traversed the great gap. And the doctrine here is the doctrine of the ascension of Christ. By the way, may I say that we think oft times about the doctrine of the incarnation or the virgin birth of Christ. We think about the doctrine of the crucifixion, the doctrine of the resurrection, but there's very little said about the ascension of Christ. What does it mean when the Bible speaks of Christ ascending up on high? Psalm 68:18, thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive and received gifts for men. Paul quotes that in Ephesians 4, wherefore he saith, he ascended up on high, led captivity captive and gave gifts, distributed gifts unto men. What do we mean when we talk about the ascension of Christ? No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, John 3.13, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. What is he talking about? You say, well, it just means he went up. It means more than that. Another person says it means he went up under his own power. I agree, but it means even more than that. The ascension of Christ is the idea of the exaltation or the enthronement of Jesus Christ. And three images are used in the Bible to illustrate what it represents. First, an ascension speaks of the return of a military hero. That's the thought in Psalm 68 in the verse I just quoted, a psalm which was written on the occasion of the triumphant return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem after it had been in enemy hands for a period of time. And whenever it came back, they had this victory parade. You may remember the streets of New York City at the end of World War II. You've seen the ticker tape, and it was a victory procession, a military parade. The conquering war heroes have come home. That's the idea of an ascension. When Jesus went back to heaven, my friends, he went back to heaven because he had led captivity captive. He had won the victory over the enemies. And he was leading a train in procession of victory or triumph like an old Roman triumph parade, that's the first thought of the ascension of Christ. The ascension of Christ, my beloved, in other words, signals the victory that he accomplished on Calvary. He's a victor. He's a, the captain of our salvation. Secondly, the ascension of Christ, that imagery is used to speak of the coronation of a king. You know, when David was crowned king, he climbed the steps to the throne. He ascended. That's the imagery used in Psalm 24.3 when he says, Who shall ascend into God's holy hill? And the answer is only someone who has clean hands and a pure heart. And the conclusion is that the gates are asleep because none is found worthy to be king. But yet then he says in this 
triumphant cry, open the gates and lift up your heads, O ye gates. The sleeping sentries are now suddenly awakened. Open the gates and the King of glory shall come in. The ascension of Christ, my beloved, is described in Daniel 7 when he says, I saw in the night visions one like the Son of Man came before the Ancient of Days. He came with the angels of heaven and he appeared before God the Father and there was given to him a kingdom. He's the king, coronated, crowned, crowned Lord of all. We sing that song, don't we? Crown him Lord of all. I'm telling you, dear friends, whether you and I ever crown him or acknowledge him as king or not, God the Father has already crowned him both Lord and Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ, though his head was once crowned with thorns, it's crowned with glory now. A royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's brow. The highest place that heaven affords is his by sovereign right. The King of kings and Lord of lords in heaven's eternal light. Thirdly, the ascension of Christ speaks not only of the return of a military hero and the coronation of a king, but the installation of a priest. And that's the image in our text. We have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. This priest has been invested and installed in his heavenly session because he has made the sacrifice and now he's there to intercede for the same people for whom he made sacrifice. I want to ask one final question, and we'll have to come back next time, God willing, to deal with this. What are the implications of the priesthood of Jesus Christ to us today? What does it mean? How does this truth that we have a great high priest, we have one. It's not me, it's not you, it's not any other human being, but it's the man Christ Jesus who is the very Son of God, who has now gone behind the veil into heaven itself to appear in the presence. What does that mean to you and me this morning? Our text says first, it's our encouragement to maintain our profession. Seeing we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. That's the application of this truth to you and me. My friends, don't let go. Don't abandon your commitment to Christ. You remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7, persecuted for his testimony to Christ? They were throwing rocks at his tender body. They were stoning him. They gnashed on him with their teeth. That is, their blood pressure was sky high. <laughs> These people just despised Stephen, the gospel preacher in Acts chapter 7, and they began to stone him. And as he was dying... As the rocks were hurled against his body, I can just see these big boulders hitting him in the head and in the back and breaking limbs as they struck. Yet he saw heaven opened and he saw his great high priest standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen held fast his profession. Public persecution did not force him or compel him to abandon his faith or to recant his testimony, but he continued to hold firm to the faith once delivered to the saints. He continued to profess Christ. My beloved, don't let the world's opposition cause you to give up on following Jesus. Don't let what people say about you at school or at work or how they call you names 
Don't let that, my friends, cause you to abandon your confession of faith. Let us hold fast because you have a priest like Stephen did who stands up to help you. And secondly, what are the implications of this truth to us today? It is our incentive to pray in confidence. Let us, therefore, come boldly, not with trepidation and fear and anxiety and a sense of unworthiness, but with freedom of speech, confidence, boldness. Let us feel that we belong. Let us come boldly unto a throne, not of judgment, but of grace. This king's throne, my friends, is a welcoming place. We have ready access now to the Holy of Holies, no longer a foreboding courtroom, but a welcoming refuge for those that feel their need of mercy and help. Does that describe you this morning? You feel that you need help? Indeed, we have a priest. Charles Wesley, 250 years ago, put it like this. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned in my place and sprinkles now the throne of grace. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Indeed, dear friends, you can draw nigh with confidence today. You can talk to God. And you know that you have a friend there, a rich almighty friend who advocates for you, you, yes, you, have a priest. Poor, weak, and worthless, though I am, I have a rich, almighty friend. Jesus, the Savior, is his name. He listening to Grace Alone Radio Network, streaming Bible teaching from a primitive Baptist perspective, around the clock and around the world.